We're drinking male tears, we're bathing in their fears as we battle online trolls. We challenge gender roles. Welcome to the misandry R. Together we will rise and we won't apologize. We are the next big thing in boner killing. Welcome to the misandry. Welcome to the misandry. Welcome to the misandry R. Good morning, afternoon or evening and welcome to the Misandry Hour with me, your host, Clementine Ford. On this episode, we'll be discussing rape culture, sexual violence and prosecution with writers Anne Terrio and Kate Harding and criminal lawyer Louise Taylor. There is a strong content warning for this episode and listeners are advised that the episode contains graphic discussion of sexual violence, rape and victim blaming. Earlier this month, news broke of the sentencing of Brock Allen Turner, a 20-year-old American man who was convicted in March of sexually assaulting a woman at an on-campus party at Stanford University in January 2015. He was additionally convicted of assault with intent to commit rape of an intoxicated person as well as sexually penetrating an unconscious person with a foreign object. Turner's assault of the woman, which occurred in public behind a dumpster and was so severe that doctors found abrasions, lacerations and dirt in her vagina, was interrupted by two graduate students passing by on their bicycles. The men chased Turner down and detained him until police arrived. His victim, who was unconscious throughout the assault, woke up hours later at the Valley Medical Centre in San Jose. She would learn about the vicious details of the sexual violation later after reading a news report on her phone. Turner's sentencing made headlines for two major reasons. The first was because of the leniency of the sentence. Judge Aaron Persky, a Stanford alum and former college sports star, determined that jail would be too severe a punishment for Turner and sentenced him to six months in the county jail instead. That a white privileged young man with wealth and the benefit of the doubt behind him found favour with America's legal system is hardly surprising, but it especially grated with what came out next. That is, the publication of the 12-page victim impact statement read to the court by his victim. In exoriating prose, she outlined exactly what he had taken from her that night. For people listening, this was monumental. Rarely are we given the chance to listen to survivors at all, let alone in such searing ways. Turner's sentence has been almost universally condemned, which provides an encouraging view that perhaps we are making some headway in the fight against rape culture but it raises some other interesting questions about how rapists are still more comfortably understood to be criminals who sit outside of normal society rather than people who walk among us and participate in society. In the weeks since Turner's sentence, arguments have arisen perpetrating the same tired ideas about sexual assault and alcohol. In the most repulsive of examples, Turner's father submitted a character reference to Judge Persky, lamenting his son's inability to enjoy things like steak and pretzels since the trial, and how he was being punished for what he called 20 minutes of action. The entire Turner family have sidestepped the issue of Brock being an actual rapist and instead are trying to represent it as an example of a binge-drinking culture gone wild. There are Facebook groups supporting Turner, and while they're few in number, they do seem to fiercely hold on to the idea of a duality of blame when it comes to drunk victims and their predatory attackers. Anne Terrio is a Toronto-based writer, activist and social agitator. Her work can be found in the Washington Post, Vice, Jezebel, The Toast, The Establishment and others. And she joins us now to talk about the confronting reality faced by men who realise that rapists do exist in the bodies of nice young men just like themselves. Welcome to the show, Anne. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm a big fan of your work. Also, for anyone else who doesn't know, Anne also runs a Facebook page called The Bell Jar, which you absolutely must follow um, for excellent <laughs> feminist commentary. But Thank you. I'm a what, huge fan of yours. <laughs> what was your reaction to even hearing the news of Brock Turner? Because, I mean, Australia is reasonably far away from America, but we're quite enmeshed in so many stories that come out of there. And and it's really taken even our country by storm. You know what? I think like my first reaction was that I was shocked that there was a conviction, Um, which sounds really bad. But, uh, you know, there have been a few high profile sexual assault and sexual abuse cases over the past few years. And I feel like this is like the first one that has actually had a conviction with it. Yeah. I mean, I felt that same sense of, I guess, kind of bewilderment and shock as well. And, and, and also sadness that, you know, the, that you would celebrate a conviction in, in such a strong way because it's so rare for it to actually happen. Yeah. And I think also like it came and I'm sure you feel the same way. It came at a point where I was kind of exhausted of of this similar news cycle happening Mm. over and over again about sexual assault, especially like involving teenagers or on college campuses. Yeah, I think the exhaustion as well. I mean, for me, and again, like I think that it's probably exactly the same for you, is that there's these two perceptions of what rape actually is. And the first is the very comfortable, broad, mainstream social perception that rape is something that evil monsters do. And none of us know who they are, but they live in shadowy alleyways and they take unsuspecting women who are doing the right thing off the street Mm -hmm. and violate them and we can easily identify them and we can really easily identify them because women have kind of strayed into areas that they shouldn't have been straying into and then and then there's the reality of rape which is that it's perpetrated by people who are mostly known to the people being targeted by it and that sits very uncomfortably with most of society's perception of that because it means that they have to confront the reality that not only do they know rapists, but but they might actually like some rapists. They might be friends with them. They might be family members with them. They might see a side to them that is good. And because that side exists, they cannot accept that there might be a side that's bad. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think also something that's come up somewhat frequently throughout the past few years, I know certainly in Canada with the Gomeshi case is, um, you know, a lot of men who are accused of sexual violence are are men who put themselves forward as as being feminist and kind of Mm. surround themselves with feminist women. And I think it is also, I mean, it doesn't apply as much in this case, but it's it's this very sneaky kind of tactic where they also end up surrounded by a lot of vulnerable women. Yeah, just for people's backgrounds, that's Gian Gomeshi, isn't it? He was a radio host in yeah. Canada. Can you just give a little bit of background on that, please? Uh, he's just, He's been a presence in Canadian media for quite a long time. He had like a very popular show on the CBC, which is the Canadian broadcasting company um, and our kind of like main public broadcaster. Um, and, and for many years, there were kind of whispers about him and um, stuff was coming up at the CBC and uh, employees were told not to pursue allegations because he was their big draw. And uh, like I said, he he very much did surround himself with kind of like this, you know, progressive feminist community. And a couple of years ago, he was 
accused of being sexually violent towards women and in various ways. And uh, so we just had the trial this year and he was not convicted. But then in, I might get the terms wrong, but in a civil suit brought to him by a former employee, he ended up making a public apology to her, which I think kind of made it pretty clear to a lot of people that I mean, you don't apologize. You don't apologize in a courtroom unless you've done something. But how did people react? Because I've read a little bit about the Gomeshi case and uh, it seems to me that it fits in quite neatly with, you know, that binary between people who are like, well, he's obviously a predator. And I know that he's a predator because there are countless people who are coming forward. And I choose to believe people who um, share their experiences of sexual violence but then there's on the other side there's those people who just cannot get their head around the idea that someone as you said who surrounds himself with almost a barrier to protect himself against those allegations because he well no one's more feminist than he is look at all these feminists that he's surrounded by that Mm -hmm. even an apology wouldn't be enough for some people to acknowledge an admission of guilt yeah it is I mean, I I think a lot of it is that people don't really understand how trauma works and, of course, also kind of the protections you get within the court system if you're accused. So he didn't have to testify at the trial. And, you know, there is the presumption of innocence, which is very important in a criminal justice system, but does not always serve very well in cases of sexual assault because the onus is so much on the victims. And, you know, in a case like this, where um, some of the incidents had happened more than a decade ago, there wasn't, you know, necessarily clear memory uh, that Mm -hmm. the victims had of what had happened. So there was a lot of, a lot of it looked like they were um, either, you know, lying in court or not telling the full truth when, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the truth is that like as you and I and lots of people know is that trauma can be really messy to your memory and also like how how do you remember how you wore your hair 13 years ago which is one of the things that came up well it's like some of the questions that were asked of the the woman uh, raped by Brock Turner mm-hmm. you know, in that amazing 12 page letter that she read to the court where she recounted the the questions that his defense attorney asked her you know like you said absurd things like and you know at what what time did you go to the toilet and what particular outfit were you wearing i mean the fact that my understanding is that technically you're not supposed to be allowed to ask that question anymore at least certainly not in australia in australian courtrooms mm-hmm. you're not supposed to ask what people were wearing but if they're getting around that now by using it as a point of well if you can't remember what you're wearing then how can we really trust your recollection of events at all i mean you're right like you might forget how you were wearing your hair but you don't exactly forget someone violating you mm-hmm. um i just want to go to in an article that you wrote recently for the establishment it's called men see themselves in brock turner that's why they don't condemn him you point out that the narrative persists that young white men convicted of rape are being denied their futures and it's a it's a pattern that we can see throughout a lot of prominent rape trials and certainly ones that have come out involving particular kind of young man, you know, typically white, valued by his community, considered to be going places. Um, We saw this happen in Steubenville in Ohio with the two young men who were convicted of 
sexually assaulting another unconscious woman and mm-hmm. even CNN lamented the loss of their promising futures. So I remember reading shortly after this happened a very insightful comment by a woman called Louisa Curry who said that, let me just quote this for you, I see a pattern emerging in rape culture that suggests women have a past while men have, have a potential. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I was super struck by that comment as well because I remember you had posted it on social media and I, I think that is a pattern we see very frequently that at these trials what ends up being dug up is, you know, years of past behavior that have, by women, that have nothing to do with the assault, but is, you know, brought up of, well, don't you like to drink a lot? Don't you like to sleep with men? Don't you like to wear short skirts? Whereas, you know, the narrative we hear consistently about men is that what they could go on to do as potential, like maybe they could be a doctor or, (sighs) you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's it's similar also. It struck me it's similar to kind of the narrative we hear about reproductive choice where so often when people are anti-abortion and, and they'll talk about the potential future of the fetus and the woman again has a past, but nobody ever talks about like, oh, well, if, if this woman had an abortion, maybe that means she could complete medical school or mm. whatever. Yeah, that's a really great point. But, you know, women have to be responsible for every terrible thing that they that they do that mm-hmm. implies that they think that they might have some kind of control over their lives. And in particularly in relation to, I think, the correlation between that bodily autonomy, that women are forced to be responsible for what we allow into our bodies, but we have no say or people would choose to take away our right to have any say over what we take out of our bodies. I think it's interesting that that sort of insistence on not just on focusing on men's future and what they might be missing out on, but also the way that that frames sexual assault. I mean, on the one hand, we live in a society where a lot of people deny the existence of rape culture because they say things like, well, how can you possibly say that we condone rape? No one condones rape because they're not thinking about it critically, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But we also live in a society where men are given, particularly young men who look like Brock Turner and who come from families like Brock Turner's. I mean, he's obviously the exception to the rule. But we live in a society where men like that are given the benefit of the doubt to the point where sexual assault almost becomes a mistake that they're entitled to make at least once so that they can learn from the experience. But we can't Mm -hmm. ask them to do anything more than that than just learn from it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely like a real sense of like, well, he didn't know any better. And I was like, we're talking about like, he's what, 20, 21, like definitely. But there is a part of me, like, as I wrote on the article, you mentioned that I feel like maybe he did not consider what he was doing to be sexual assault, which is the terrifying thing that sexual assault and rape is, is so normalized that men do not think things that they do are rape. I think that what was so great about your piece, and again, people can find that piece on um, theestablishment.co, and it's called Men See Themselves in Brock Turner, That's Why They Don't Condemn Him. But I think that what's so insightful about that piece and so true is that it's that sense of one of the reasons why I think that people have come out so strongly against Brock Turner and why men in particular have come out so strongly, and I'm not saying that this is a nefarious thing or anything like that, I think it's very subconscious, mm-hmm. 
is that the two witnesses who happened to intervene and stop the assault and hold him down and call the police were men. Mm-hmm. And not only does that mean that, you know, it's kind of like plays into that idea that if they if they had been women, then I think that we'd be hearing a lot more from people about, well, we don't know what the backstory is. We don't know whether or not these were women colluding with each other, whether or not these were women who were trying to get back at Brock Turner for something. The fact mm-hmm. that they were men means that they're given an impartiality as witnesses. They have no reason to lie. So we can we can kind of trust them a little bit more with that. But mm-hmm. this, the second part of that that I think is quite telling about how we construct narratives around sexual violence and and how we change social ideas around them is that men who are hostile to hearing anything about feminism or hearing anything about social change react in the ways that they do to stories about violence against women by saying, well, not all men. Because Mm -hmm. the only... If they've been trained throughout all of their lives to kind of look at stories and see themselves in those stories because obviously men and white men in particular are centralised in in any kind of storytelling structure, then if you're telling a story about sexual violence in which there is only the woman and the rapist, the only person that they can imagine themselves being in that scenario is the man who's the rapist and that's very Mm -hmm. uncomfortable for them, which kind of ties into what you're saying. But because there were two male witnesses who have been even referred to as heroes, they suddenly mm-hmm. have a completely different role to play in that story, which means that they can be more enthusiastically opposed to it when they're participating after the fact. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think it is, it, it's good that that part of the narrative did come out because I think it, it was a really good model of how bystander intervention can work. Mm. Um, but I agree that I, I think that um, you know, men are considered to be more credible witnesses and things like this than than if if it had been two women happening upon it. I'm going to have to wrap it up there because we've just come to the end of my time. But just before we go, I just wanted to ask, Anne, do you see, I mean, are you confident that change is actually happening, not just in your own neighbourhoods, but kind of worldwide? Because we can get so overcome by exhaustion sometimes and... <laughs> I don't know, I, I sort of, I'm torn between thinking that this might be the start of something real and not wanting to get my hopes up too much. I, I think it's a conversation that is happening that maybe wasn't happening, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or is happening in a different way. Like, I, I am hopeful. And like, I don't know, like these kids these days with their like Tumblr and like they just sit like all the teenagers I come across seem so smart and engaged with social issues and like are are way more up to date on um, like social justice and feminism than I was when I was their age. So that gives me a lot of hope. And Terrio, it's been a pleasure speaking to you and I will continue to consume and enjoy your work voraciously. Please never give up, never surrender. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely. Welcome to the Misandry Hour. You're listening to the Misandry Hour with Clementine Ford. This episode, we are discussing rape culture, sexual violence, and the criminal justice system. Every seven minutes, someone in America commits a rape. And whether that's a football star, beloved celebrity, elected official, member of the clergy, or just an average Joe or Joanna, there's probably a community eager to make excuses for that person. Kate Harding is the author of Asking For It, The Alarming Rise of Rape Culture and What We Can Do About It, and was a finalist for the Minnesota Book Award in General Nonfiction. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thanks so much for having me. What What is different about this case from the ones that you've studied for your book? Uh, so many things, but I, you know, I think the number one thing that has made such a difference in terms of our hearing about it is that there were two white male witnesses. Mm. Um, so that really, you know, if, if those two Swedish men on their bicycles hadn't stopped by, seen this, recognized it as a rape, and reacted as that in that way then we probably wouldn't be having any of these conversations. Brock Turner would not have been arrested, let alone prosecuted and convicted. Um, so beyond that, I also think that like one, one sad difference is that there actually was a conviction. You know, we're all outraged that it was such a, um, such a short sentence, but the fact that he was found guilty at all is so rare in our justice system. It's, um, fu- it's funny yeah. that you say that because um, just prior to speaking to you, I spoke to Anne Terrio and she said almost exactly the same things, you know, that, that, Mm -hmm. and I felt that too, you know, that instant kind of gratification that there was at least a conviction. And isn't that sad? It's so sad. Uh, You know, we, we talk about this as a crime that we think of as like second only to murder in the, you know, hierarchy of violent crime that we deplore, but we don't actually want to punish rapists because we don't actually want to recognize that rapists exist. I mean, this is something that I find myself saying a lot uh, when I speak about this. I, I feel like the problem is not so much, you know, all of the victim blaming and everything that we do that puts it on the victim, usually a woman, should have made better choices. Um, it's not necessarily that we don't want to believe that she was raped. It's that we don't want to believe someone raped her. Mm. Like that's, you know, it's not that we can't take the woman's word for it. It's that taking the woman's word for it means we have to believe that some man and maybe it was a nice young white athlete like Brock Turner actually did this, actually committed a crime. And that's where we get hung up. That's such a great point because, you know, that's the thing that and I'm sure that you came up against so much of this while you're writing your book. But even just as a feminist working in online spaces, you're just bombarded sure. with this kind of insistence, not only that rape culture isn't real, but that also, you know, people pull these statistics out of thin air and say things like, I mean, I even had it last night, you know, less than 1% of men are rapists. And you think, well, I'm not saying that 50% of them are rapists, but you have no data to support that statistic or you're certainly not offering me that data because right. because you sort of feel like it's more comfortable for you to believe or for you to want to believe that someone who perpetrates rape is not actually a normal person who moves through society and, and has relationships with people that can in lots of cases be genuinely good. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. You know, it, it's it's a matter of being able to kind of recontextualize someone that you liked and admired as the kind of person who would rape. And the more you understand about how rape works and the fact that it's not all about, you know, a monster jumping out of the bushes, the more you can understand that, yes, someone who is seemingly normal in all of these areas of life can also be a person who commits rape. Mm. But um, it's not something, yeah, it's not something that people are keen to believe at all. What were some of the most surprising things that you discovered during the course of researching asking for it? Uh, You know, what was sad was that I just wasn't really surprised. I guess the thing that maybe surprised me 
was just the sheer ongoing volume that it was very hard for me to finish the book because stuff kept happening in the news every single day where there was another story mm. and another story. And, uh, you know, and even when it was in edits, my editors are going like, you have to get in at least a line about Bill Cosby now. Mm. And of course, it's been a year now. I'm actually about to write a piece for Refinery29 to come out in August to coincide with the first anniversary of the book's publication to talk about basically what's happened in the last year. Has anything changed? Has anything, you know, gotten better or gotten worse? You know, that is actually a really terrifying prospect, the fact that you could do an anniversary edition every year and there would be enough content for a whole new book. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's absolutely horrifying and true. It's interesting that you mentioned Bill Cosby because I was having a, um, I'm not going to call it a conversation, but an (laughs) argument with someone on Twitter last night. I mean, can you ever have a conversation on Twitter? Um, No. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly not about rape. (laughs) Yeah. Well, these two guys, um, surprisingly, they were anonymous. Um, They were very insistent. I mean, it was kind of like the bingo card of anything that comes up when you when you're a feminist discussing rape culture on online you know not only were they very fixated on the idea of false rape reports and i and i want to ask you about that in a minute but they were very fixated on this idea that that false rape reports were just happening in abundance you know almost to the point of equality with actual rape which they kind of acknowledged was real but not in any way that made not in any way that would affect their life in, at all, but also that, you know, women lie and women accuse and that sort of classic line that I'm sure you're very sick of hearing because I certainly am, that innocent until proven guilty yes. all the time, as if it's so easy to prove to prove guilt in a courtroom when you're talking about a sexual sure. assault that's happened in private. But one of well, them brought up Bill Cosby okay. and... Mm-hmm. You know, in in his mind, even Bill Cosby is a victim of this this sort of what mm-hmm. he called attention seekers, and I said, oh yeah, you're right. Like it does make sense that fifty women who don't know each other would definitely get together and seek the kind of attention that comes right. from <laughs> accusing a very famous man of sexual assault. Yeah. And to what end? You know, I mean, everybody thinks that especially if they accuse a famous man that they must be looking for money. But Mm. so really, you're going to have your entire life, your name, your reputation splashed all over the news. You're going to have guys like this coming at you constantly. Mm. Also, that maybe there's a payoff down the line if, you know, a civil court determines it. No, nobody's doing that. But it does sort of speak to this kind of paranoia that a lot of the men who are hostile to discussing issues of rape and particularly rape culture seem again to be very fixated on this idea that that actually what's really happening here is that women are lying Um, right and you've you cover the issue of false rape reporting in asking for it and it's a take that I hadn't my understanding just was limited to the fact that it's between 2 to 8%, which is generally right. in correlation with false reporting of, of any crime. Um, sure. But you say that actually there's lots of other things going on there. Can you give a little bit of background on that? Well, you know, one thing is that if we look at who actually, you know, cases where we know a false report was made to police, the the profile of the person who does that is it's someone who is seeking attention and sympathy, not trying to get someone in trouble. So like, you know, the feminist boogeyman, the the thing that we all fear is that a woman who is just vengeful, who is angry at a guy is going to go into a police station, convincingly, convincingly convince someone 
that uh, that she has been raped when it was actually consensual sex and then get this guy in trouble, completely ruin his life. Like that's what men are afraid of. Mm. The people who actually make false accusations, they don't give a name. They don't say, you know, Joe Schmo, who I was with last night and a bunch of people are witnesses, raped me. Mm. They say, you know, it was some, you know, white guy who jumped out of the bushes, basically that kind of thing. Um, and or, or in cases like, you know, Crystal Mangum with the Duke lacrosse case that was so famous mm. here, she had a story that was so wildly inconsistent. Like, and, and, you know, genuine victims will often leave parts of the story out or their memories will change a little bit. And, it you know, it won't be perfectly consistent, like as though it were rehearsed or something. But from day one, there were so many red flags on her story and it got carried as far as it did because of an overzealous prosecutor who suddenly decided, like, I am going to nail these guys and it's going to get me reelected. Mm-hmm. And he didn't, you know, to the point where he didn't even apparently care if it was true. He was later disbarred. Mm-hmm. And so I, I sort of joke, but it's true that, like, it takes a village to make a false rape accusation into something that can actually ruin someone's life. Mm-hmm. And when you consider how many actual genuine allegations aren't prosecuted in any way that results in exactly. satisfaction for the victim. I mean, yeah. it's it's just, again, it comes down to that absurdity of, it's the Occam's razor thing, you know, like the most likely answer is, is the one that's probably true. And why would anyone go to that level of trouble? Yeah. I know that, you know, America's definitely had its fair share of, of sports. I love how they call them sex scandals, as if somehow oh, it's yes. scandalous rather than it's just a little bit of Benny Hill scandal rather than right. actual criminal activity. Um, but I was thinking about this the other day that there's a case that became very well known in Australia in 2009, but actually happened in 2002. And it involved a rugby team, a rugby team called the Cronulla Sharks, who were on, they were on like a players retreat in I think they'd been playing a game or something and then they were having like a a retreat in Christchurch in New Zealand and you know this is a team of of big rugby players and a young 19 year old I'm going to call her a girl in this situation because I think that her power was completely removed from her um she went into a hotel room with two of them and said that she started kissing one of them and then sex progressed from there but during the course of this up to 12 other members of the team and members of management entered the room without her consent, without her prior negotiation or permission. This is all not even disputed by the team because the the story as it came out was done in an an investigative show here called Four Corners. Six more men, as she said, using her words, six more men had sex with her and some of them just stood around masturbating and watching. And in her recollection of it, she also said that something which I thought was really heartbreaking. She said that, you know, sex is normally like you talk and you laugh with each other, but there was none of that here. They were talking and laughing with each other, but none of them were talking to me. And, you know, five days passed and she went and filed charges with the police who elected not to pursue them because they said that there wasn't enough evidence. Oh, for God's sake. I, you know, I think people are almost deliberately keep themselves ignorant about what consent really means and what the ramifications really are, where it's just so much simpler to think that, well, you know, if this happened and it was these nice young rugby players, Mm. then it must be that this girl is lying. Like the girl is lying is such a simple answer to such 
a complicated problem that, you know, and a nuanced problem that is different in every single case. And I think it makes people feel much more comfortable if they don't have to think about it and don't have to think about this pack of young men as, you know, aggressive criminals. And maybe they didn't think of themselves that way. But I don't know if you saw, um, Sachi Cole wrote a great article on an essay on BuzzFeed today. And oh, no, I've not it seen was, it yet. So it's about basically rape culture as, you know, putting women in kind of a surveillance state. And she talks about she's been roofied twice in her life. And she, you know, both times, fortunately, uh, nothing but a bad hangover came of it. But realizing the guys who are watching her in a bar when she goes out with her friends and drinks and overhearing mm-hmm. things like, you know, oh, I wonder how many drinks it'll take. And it's it's a really great way of kind of explaining what happens in that middle ground behind, you know, the man who goes out with rape on his mind 100% mm-hmm. knows that's what he's going to be doing, that's what it's called, and then the man who because he exists in a rape culture is thinking in terms of what will lower her to lower mm. her defenses what will make her less likely to say no which is you know that's still such a messed up view of consent but that's absolutely something that we like train boys to think in mm. at least here and i assume it's similar in australia well, yeah, you know, girls are um, set up to be the gatekeepers of sexuality mm-hmm. and we have to be responsible for preventing things happening to us because boys will be boys and they're all looking for an opportunity. Right. But when you actually talk about the reality of that, you're not allowed to actually say that that's a trait that is being trained into young men because that's demonising them. So, right. So not only do women have to be the gatekeepers to all of that, but then the enemy becomes something that's mythical Right, right. Yeah, that there's, you know, we don't want to look at the people doing it as predators, even if they are literally sitting in a bar thinking, hmm, I wonder how many drinks it would take to get her on her back. Did you You see that? Did you see that story a couple of weeks ago of the three women in the, I think it was a bar in Miami, and they intervened, they witnessed a man roofing a woman's drink. And when they intervened and spoke to her, they expected it would be a first date. And she said, he's a friend of mine. We've been friends oh, for years. Right. And and that's the horrible thing too, that it, this is where it irritates me so much that the messages we get as women are, you know, you have to do X, Y, and Z to keep yourself out of these situations, to keep yourself, uh, you know, from getting raped. Mm. And it's like, no, if you can't trust a friend not to slip a Mickey in your drink, then you know, it's it, that just points up how ridiculous all of these messages are that suggest it's our job not to get ourselves raped as opposed to it is a society's job to teach men not to rape. Yeah, I mean, I always think that it's funny that parents will express this fear of having daughters. You know, they'll say like, oh, I'm just scared to have a daughter because we know what the world is like for her. Right. And no one will ever express fear of having a son because of how the world trains those men to be. Exactly. Yeah, no one says, God, what if I raise a rapist? Well, and that's also why they, you know, it's so important to people to place the onus of responsibility for prevention onto girls rather than Mm -hmm. the responsibility onto boys because people would rather, they feel more comfortable with the idea that even the girls that they love would be potential victims of assault than they do that the boys that they love would be potential perpetrators of it. Right. And I mean, you know, the thing to remember too as parents of boys is that they are also potential victims that that's, you know, not to get what about Mm. the men, but, but it is something that I like to remind audiences that just 
based on the statistics, you know, men are more likely to be raped than to be falsely accused of rape. And, and that's, you know, it's still very low numbers in both cases, but that Mm. to just think of it that way, that like men can also be victims and we never ask men to think about rape in that way of how would you feel if it happened to you? Mm. And so that's part of it is that when we talk about rape, men are always casting themselves in that role of, you know, the, the man in a kind of heterosexual binary. And since they don't think of themselves as as raping because most men aren't rapists, then all they can think is like, wow, if I were in that situation, it would be a false accusation. That would be terrible. It would ruin my life. Mm. And I mean, we're all afraid of being falsely accused of crimes. Like it's Kafka. It's terrifying, you know, but most of us don't walk around like living in fear that, you know, for some reason, someone is going to accuse me of a crime. And the fact that so many men seem to really be preoccupied with this fear tells me either that they are not real clear about consent when they have sex, or that they're just so mired in sexism that they just see women as capricious liars who will go and try and actually have someone arrested for a violent crime just because they, uh, they feel angry that day. The book is called Asking For It, The Alarming Rise of Rape Culture and What We Can Do About It. Kate Harding, thank you so much for being on my podcast. I love you. Thank you. You too. Welcome to the Missandry Moving closer to home, though, what does Australia's own justice system look like when it comes to prosecuting rape trials or even discussing rape culture? Louise Taylor is a Camilla Roy woman and a lawyer practising in the ACT, predominantly in the area of criminal law, and also a former specialist family violence prosecutor. She joins us now from Canberra. Hello, Lou. Hi, Clem. How are you going? Good, thank you. How are you? Great. Nice chat. Yeah, unfortunately about such a um, distressing topic, but yeah. one in which you have lots of experience. Sadly, yes, I do, and I think we need to keep talking about it um, as distressing as it is, and it's important that people like you continue to force us to discuss it. What are your experiences as someone who works in the courtroom actually prosecuting sexual violence cases? So I don't prosecute anymore, but but I did for a very long time. My experience of victims of crime generally, particularly women, tells me that the criminal justice system is not particularly good at accommodating the experiences of victims of crime, um, especially when they're women and especially when they're women who don't fit um, the view of a victim that people Mm. like to have in their minds. And I think that that leads to a necessary conversation about alternative pathways to justice. If you'd asked me when I started this work um, 16 years or so ago, maybe longer, I don't want to think too much about how old I am, but if you'd asked me when I started my career whether I thought that justice was something the criminal justice system was good at delivering, my younger self probably would have enthusiastically said yes. But my years in a courtroom environment have impacted that view and I think now we need to recognise that we may need to think about how we could provide access to justice and justice to victims of sexual assault and men's violence in a different way. Mm. That's so sad that that kind of faith in the justice system can be destroyed by witnessing the justice system. Yeah, I mean, I think that's not to say that it's not administered with good faith, with great intentions, 
and people that work within it work incredibly hard and are often faced with terribly traumatic stories. Mm. You know, some of the things that you see in the criminal justice system are human beings at their absolute worst, and that's grinding work at the coalface mm. for all the practitioners, not just lawyers, but for all practitioners, court staff who are forced to engage in those stories. But I think that we have to come to grips with the idea and the acceptance that the criminal justice system is imperfect. And we ask a lot of it, to be fair to it. We do ask a lot of the criminal justice system. And at times, I just don't think it's capable of delivering what we ask of it and the expectations that the community have of it. Um, And I think that's a conversation we need to have, particularly in the context of sexual assault Mm. and family violence. There's been discussion or suggestions over the years that survivors of sexual assault would fare better if it was prosecuted as a civil case as opposed Mm. to a criminal case. Mm. It's a tricky one to think about because, of course, it's a crime. It's one of the the worst crimes that anyone can commit. Mm. But in a a sort of purely utilitarian sense, would it result in more justice being done if it was treated as a civil matter? Oh, look, I've not ever thought about it um, in that context, I confess. Um, I think that there's a fine balance here, Mm -hmm. isn't there, between maintaining the integrity of the foundations of our justice system, that is, you're you're guilty until... um, Sorry, you're innocent until proven otherwise, beyond reasonable doubt, and that's a fundamental aspect of our criminal justice system, and I don't know that anyone wants to see that differently. Mm. But I think what we have to recognise is that there are some particular challenges around... Um, successful prosecutions of sexual assaults in particular and they seem to me to be in my experience largely based around judgments and misconceptions and stereotypes and expectations of women and how women act when they are victims, legitimate victims of sexual assault and when victims present to the criminal justice system who don't come with those stereotypes and expectations, they are, in my experience, often judged much more harshly. Uh, and and um, actually, that, they would, that's part of it. And they would account for the majority, actually. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Are the survivors who, who don't present in the yeah. way that comfortably satisfies a list of, you know, yeah. checkbox. Yeah, I think that as a community, we need to ask ourselves why we're very comfortable with the idea of someone being a victim if she's, you know, walking down an alleyway at three o'clock in the morning, stone cold sober, only walking down the alleyway because it was a detour. So she was forced to walk down the alley and a man in a balaclava leaps out and clubs her over the head and beats Mm. her senseless and rapes her. I think we're very comfortable with victims and they've never met each other. And Mm. um, he goes off into the night and she screams out for help and people come to her assistance. Uh, and she cooperates fully with the police and her physical injuries completely reflect the version that she gives. I think we're very comfortable with a victim that presents like that. And the truth is, victims rarely present like that. There's something really disturbing about the impulse that so many people have to to justify or to believe to believe that a sexual assault occurred in their mind. They need, beyond the physical evidence that might be secured by medical staff they actually need some kind of physical visible evidence they need her to have been beaten as well yes yes Yes. i think that there's a a tendency to want more than just a complainant saying this happened to me and i behaved in a particular way because of x y and z 
And I think we're even more cynical as a community if there's ever been any relationship between the parties before or they know each other or, in fact, there's been sexual contact with them before. I think that we're very cynical about that and I think that until we come to grips with, as a community, why we are cynical about that, we won't make any headway into unpicking why we have a low rate of convictions for these matters. And that's not to say, I I should, it's important that I preface my comments by saying I, that I think that everybody is entitled to to take their trial and have a, a fair trial. It's not a matter of tipping the balance the other way and thinking that you might get to a situation where defendants are required to prove their innocence. That's not something I'd like to see happen either. But I think we need to recognise that those stereotypes and judgments that people make, in particular of women, absolutely impact the justice that a victim can get from the criminal justice system. In your experience as a lawyer, one of the things that I found quite distressing about the way that people discuss and perceive sexual violence is that, and this goes back to that idea of like physical, visible evidence, Mm. is that if there is no, if a rape has occurred as a result of coercion, instead of what comfortably sits in people's minds as force, then it seems like there are a lot of people who believe that it's not that big a deal because, uh, firstly, because it's, you know she hasn't been beaten as well, yeah. but also because sex is something that women have. So if she's had sex before, then coercion, you know, it might be or uncomfortable for her. Or, yeah. yeah, or manipulation. It might be uncomfortable for her, but it's not really that bad. So therefore, why right. why should someone be punished for it? Yeah. Well, and in particular circumstances, why should their life be ruined? Because they made an error of judgment around consent, let's say. Mm. And that didn't result in a black eye or a broken jaw or tearing to the complainant's genitals or all the things that we feel more comfortable about seeing in victims of sexual assault. Mm. And I think that, again, that comes back to the premium that our community puts on the violation of women's bodies and women's Mm. bodily autonomy and, and what um, function we serve. Yeah, exactly. And it's in the context of a legal system that's driven, has been largely driven by men and is very much, I guess, characterised by the male view, I suppose, of sexuality and women's sexuality and what's acceptable. I think that that's such a good point and it's something that I try and articulate a lot when I'm talking about rape culture and particularly up against defence lawyers who get very upset about some of the discussion around this and any any idea that maybe the legal system is being impugned in any way. Mm. But that we have to remember that the law wasn't written by, you know, some powerful being that sits outside of humanity. It was written by humans and it was mm. written mainly Absolutely. by Yeah, mainly yeah. by by white middle class men. Mm. So that idea that somehow it is automatically appropriately able to judge what is and isn't a violation is really troubling, especially when you're dealing with the idea of jury trials, because everyone comes in with their own perceptions. And if we live in a society that has these victim-blaming attitudes and has, you know, sexual objectification of women as a primary kind of engagement with women, Mm -hmm. then of course those ideas filter through to the way that these cases are prosecuted? I think that it would be a naive view indeed or perhaps a bit of a Pollyanna one to think that 
the outcomes in these matters are not impacted by those things that you speak of, that is attitudes to women, objectification of women, attitudes towards sexuality and women's interaction with with men because juries are members of our community. And it's why I think it's so important that there's a discussion outside of the law around these sorts of things because jury members play an extremely important function and it is an essential part of our criminal justice system that there is that your peers come along and judge you. That's something that's been a fundamental part of our system. But Um, we are silly to think that they don't bring their own... Prejudices. ...misconceptions and prejudices, not just about women, of course, but about minority groups, Aboriginal people, and in in my particular area that I think about a lot, Aboriginal women in particular, I would say, suffer from a lot of those judgments, misconceptions and stereotypes. I want to use that opportunity to talk to you about Lynette Daly as well, because Lynette Daly was an Aboriginal woman who, i use careful language here, died after an incident at Ten Mile Beach in northern New South Wales in January of 2011. Now, at the time, two men were made known to police and charges were not pursued against them, but that has recently changed thanks to the tireless advocacy of Lynette's family. Yes. Uh, so Adrian Atwater and his friend Paul Morris have, have now been charged over her death. But her death was also precipitated by an extreme sexual incident, and again, using very careful language, Mm. um, that resulted in horrific injuries for her that led to her dying. Uh, It seems absurd to me that there would be a situation in which charges would not be at least pursued in a stronger manner when someone just dies like this. But also the fact that she's she was an Aboriginal woman who was known to people in the community as fulfilling certain stereotypes that satisfied mm. ideas that they had yeah. would have meant possibly that she was given less paths to justice. Mm. Yeah, look, obviously I'd be reluctant to comment in any specific detail given that two people have now been charged in relation to her death. And I'll certainly take the opportunity to pay tribute to the tireless advocacy of her family in circumstances where they themselves were dealing with their own grief. But what that case for me reveals is the ease with which Aboriginal women can be dismissed and other women potentially, but but my focus is on Aboriginal women Mm. and access to justice for them. And like many other Aboriginal women that I've seen over the years and other cases that I've heard about, they are at times easily dismissed by the criminal justice system because of perceived issues to do with their credibility, which is you know, where the law turns when we think about victims and the ability to prove things that they say that have happened to them. And it's revealed again for me and for many people who work at the coalface and the front line of these matters the circumstances of her death while shocking would not have been surprising in terms of the failure to pursue justice for her Mm. is just another example of the way in which Aboriginal women are accommodated and embraced by the criminal justice system as victims Mm. we're very easily embraced as defendants and we're certainly very easily embraced as negligent slash abusive parents by the child protection system. So there's no difficulty with that. 
But it is the case that Aboriginal women have a very fraught relationship with the criminal justice system and that comes into play when we seek refuge from it or Mm. justice from it when we are victims of violence, yeah. And I think that that case sadly highlights the difficulties for Aboriginal women in that context. Yeah, there's a sense of, uh, so horrible to talk about, but a sense of disposability. Yeah, and I mean, I watched the expose that explored some of those issues and brought them to the attention of the general community, but I have to confess I had never heard of her death before then. And that's odd to me, that a woman could die in those circumstances and it wouldn't make national news in the way that, say, the tragic murder of Jill Maher did let's say, Mm. or the disappearance of Alison Baden-Clay did in its initial stages. I mean, we're Mm. captivated as a community by those cases and we demand, in fact, people literally marched in the streets over the death of Alison Baden-Clay. And we don't see that response for Aboriginal women as victims and I think as a community we must ask ourselves why. And the cynical part of me goes straight to the answer which is that the value of Aboriginal women's lives is not what it should be Mm. and that's the cold hard truth of it in my mind. There's also the matter of and this is especially true for Aboriginal women but it more broadly informs the way that people think about sexual assault anyway particularly when it occurs with two or more assailants Mm. is that provided that the men collude together to say that consent was there then that's kind of all that counts. Mm. And I'm not linking that necessarily to Lynette Daly's case, but you see that across so many cases of sexual violence where it involves two or more perpetrators, Mm. that you hear, well, there was consent, she consented. Even if the survivor of that assault is saying, I did not consent and is pursuing charges, Mm. there is this idea that almost that if men consent to do something together, then that's all that's required. And it's really frightening to see how easily that's taken up by members of the community as well where they will just ignore all of the testimony coming from the person saying this crime was committed against me Mm. and say well no no this was a consensual matter. And I think generally there's also there needs to be a more sophisticated analysis of what power does in those circumstances so yeah, okay, perhaps she wasn't held down against her will. Perhaps, as we spoke earlier, she wasn't beaten black and blue. But the dynamic of power and control in sexual assault is Mm. not to be underestimated. And, you know, women that I've dealt with over the years who were very assertive, very, very much women who in ordinary circumstances would be able to stand up for themselves or assert their position confidently have said to me, I just froze. I just I couldn't believe it was happening and I just froze and or I was so frightened of what was happening I just thought if I cooperated it would be safer for me mm. and again there's a cynicism that goes with assessing that as a credible claim and often from people who have no experience of having that violation occur to them and I think that That's part of the importance, as I said earlier, of having these conversations because we begin to unpack the whole range of experiences of victims of sexual assault that can lead people to think, aha, okay, I understand that that is a potential response of someone in that circumstance. Mm. I understand now that 
it is possible to freeze in those circumstances and not know how to assert yourself. Or it is possible to be completely under the spell of the dynamic of power and control such that you don't feel that you can get up out of a room and leave or kick somebody off you or do all the things that we as a community like to see victims do to manifest their lack of consent. But that actually no one knows what they would do until they're in that situation and the easiest way to counter this as a community is to place more emphasis on not just more emphasis but to heavily force the issue of training around consent and enthusiastic consent and an affirmative consent so that no one is in the situation where you know where they're having to fight someone off or decide whether or not to freeze but also so that no one is in the situation where they are pushing someone to do something that clearly that person doesn't want to do and I think that's an essential part of the conversation in particular for young people I went to a high school recently and this came up as a topic of conversation and one of the teachers said in a very well-meaning way you know of course if any of you are at a party and you see a young girl there who's highly intoxicated you know, good friends take care of that person and make sure that she doesn't come um, to harm's way. And I interjected and said, and good friends also make sure that friends who might be in a position to exploit a young girl's intoxication don't do that. Mm. You know, good friends look out for their mates who might be looking to take advantage or exploit a situation where a young girl, and that's the situation, the, the example they'd given, is so intoxicated as to not know what's happening to her. Mm. And so it's about putting the responsibility, moving the responsibility away from potential or actual complainants Mm. and teaching people what consent actually is. Mm. And as a mother of boys, I think that's an essential component of how we raise our young men. Absolutely. Louise, thank you so much for joining us and giving your valuable insight and expertise on this very difficult topic. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks, Clem, and and thanks to you for continuing these important conversations and I'd be pleased to talk with you again about them. We're drinking male tears, we're bathing in their fears. And that's all we have time for today. Great thanks to and respect for the tireless work being done by my guests to challenge the existence of rape culture. Toronto-based writer Anne Terrio, Minnesota author and activist Kate Harding and Australian criminal lawyer Louise Taylor. You can find out more about the show and the guests we have on at our Twitter account, which is at the Hour, or you can email us on themisandriehour at gmail.com. Thanks also to our legendary patrons at Patreon. If you would like to become a donor, check out the link on our SoundCloud or Twitter account and listen to past episodes on www.soundcloud.com forward slash themisandriehour. A special note of thanks also to my producer, Emma Hart, who has done such brilliant work over the last six episodes of the show. Emma's unfortunately leaving to go overseas for a well-earned break, and I will miss her very, very much. And finally, a last note of thanks to the gals at Lady Sings It Better, who are behind the theme song for the show. You can find out details for their upcoming gigs on our Twitter account as well, which again is at the Missandry Hour. And until next time, remember, there's nothing sexier than consent. We challenge gender roles. Welcome to the misandry hour. Together we will rise and we won't apologize. We are the next big thing in boner killing. Welcome to the misandry. Welcome to the misandry. Welcome to the misandry hour.